Hey everybody, welcome back to The Local Youth Worker, a podcast brought to you by Reformed Youth Ministries. I'm your host, John Parrott. Uh, Today I have two friends of mine coming on to discuss how they uh, deal with the theme of biblical sexuality in their churches, both from the pulpit and Sunday school and uh, even in their home. Uh, I hope that's helpful for you. Uh, Just a reminder to uh, point you back to the other episodes in this season as we are uh, into season nine. Uh, We've talked about uh, same-sex attraction and transgenderism, Christians in cohabitation, relationships and dating. Uh, We have some forthcoming episodes uh, dealing with uh, pornography and, and other aspects of uh, this theme of biblical sexuality. Uh, I hope it's continuing to help you think about these things, process these things, and hopefully uh, it's serving you well. Uh, right now, here's my conversation with Jason and Joel. Hope you enjoy it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, today, I welcome two good friends that I have not gotten to connect uh, with in, in quite some time. I have Jason Redberg and Joel Smelly with me. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. here. I was wondering if you guys would interrupt each other. I always wonder whenever I kind of pitch the welcome out, how's that going to go? And uh, that went about as I suspected. Um, Jason and Joel and I, we we attended Southern Baptist Theological Seminary together. Um, Guys, 2014 to 2016, is that right? Somewhere in there? That sounds about right. Okay, they're, they're both senior pastors, and I was going to bring them on today as we continue the season nine of the podcast talking about biblical sexuality, just to see from, from their perspective as senior pastors, how they seek to lead their congregations uh, through various difficult issues uh, that are going on within the church, as well as outside the church and the culture, um, as well as inside the home. Uh, so before we, we jump into that discussion, Jason, Joel, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you guys are living, family, all that stuff. Joel is pointing at Jason. So Jason, why don't you go ahead, start us off. Where are you living? What are you doing? I live in Minnetonka, Minnesota. Uh, so just 13 miles west of Minneapolis. And I just started my fifth year here. I serve as the lead pastor of Redeemer Bible Church and uh, just delighted with uh, the ministry here, to be part of the ministry here. Uh, this is a, it's a wonderful church family. God has surrounded me with, with a great staff and great elders. Uh, my, my family loves being here. So I have roots in Minnesota. My, my wife was born and raised just about 45 minutes from where we are right now. And then my dad also was born and raised uh, about 40 minutes or so from where I pastor now. So coming to Minnesota, even though I had I had only lived here briefly when I was little, it was like coming home. And uh, we've really, really loved being here. I have four children. I have a 16-year-old daughter, a, a almost 13-year-old son, an eight-year-old son, and a seven-year-old daughter. And so our life is is busy, but it's busy in really uh, enjoyable ways right now. Awesome. And, and I've got to say, pre-recording, I was asking Jason, uh, Minnetonka is where he said he lives. And I was like, how do you pronounce, or where are you, where are you living? He said, Minnesota. And then I was like, how do you pronounce? And I couldn't get Minnetonka out. And he just looked at me and said, Minnesota, very sarcastically. <laughs> um and anyway, that just gives you a little bit of a preview into our relationship and maybe a preview in how this podcast will go. But uh, <laughs> appreciate that, Jason. Joel, where are you living? What are you doing? Uh, our family and I, um, we moved from Charlotte, North Carolina, most recently uh, from a church plant that God used us to begin. Um, we were there for about three and a half years and God made it clear it was time to, to pursue something different. And uh, a church here in Noonan, Georgia, Heatherwood Baptist Church, um, had been through all sorts of just pain and turmoil and difficulty and was in the middle of a transition process. And uh, they called uh, me to be the senior pastor. And so we are working through establishing ministry and training leaders, and uh, we love it here. Uh, it is a family. Uh, it's in an area that we we really feel like this could be 20 to 25 years of ministry life here. So we're excited to be here. Um, I am uh, married to Kim. We have three daughters, 12, 10, and 6. And uh, that is usually followed when I introduce that with, man, that's three marriages to pay for, to which I respond, thanks. 
<laughs> Thanks for bringing that up. So that's the smelly clam. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, I, I was going to follow up with that. So you completely stole my line. Um, no, look, it, it's great to see the two of you. Um, it's awesome to reconnect. I mean, j- just my time at Southern Baptist Seminary was awesome. I, I loved it. Um, at the same time, we know anytime you're going through seminary, it can be very challenging, very difficult with the papers and the tests and all the readings. And so um, I don't want to say this to say my time at Southern was not awesome because it was, and I would totally go back there. But if it weren't for the two of you guys, um, it would have been a tough, a tough journey for sure. And so uh, just thanking the two of you for your friendship. And uh, it's awesome to be able to, to reconnect with the two of you today to talk about a very challenging uh, topic. Again, pre-recording, we were kind of joking, uh, Jason and Joel, <laughs> joking with me of, hey, hey, thanks, John, for having us on the podcast to talk about something very uh, simple, very easy to deal with as we, we talk about biblical sexuality and get into issues like same-sex attraction and transgenderism and um, how you guys are, are seeking to lead your your congregations in this. And obviously, too, I'd love for us, as this is the local youth worker, how you guys are thinking about youth ministry, maybe specifically, and maybe working alongside youth workers, which was just real quick. Did, did both of you have youth workers in your church context or, or not? Yes. Okay, you, you both do. Uh, yeah. Something I probably should have asked you to before uh, you all got it on. Uh, but before we talk about how you lead uh, your congregations, let's talk about your smaller congregations, your congregations of the home. How do you guys seek to lead your families in topics of, of biblical sexuality? Maybe even just how you guys have the talk, how you guys answer questions with, with your children. Um, let's see, who wants to go first there? Okay, Jason. Oh, it was close. That was that was a photo finish. Jason, go for it. Yeah, I mean, I know people can't see the video of this, but it's just a, a tiny little example of uh, my superior athletic ability over Jill Smelly. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Take my word for that if you're listening to this podcast. But um, yeah, I mean, so our our oldest is 16, and so. Uh, several years ago now, as she was she was preparing to enter her teen years, um, we had, uh, of course, from the time God entrusted uh, our children to us, we've tried to raise them in the context of a home where um, where Jesus is Lord over everything we do, where the scriptures are part of uh, the natural rhythms of our life. And so it was not strange at all for us to begin to talk about uh, biblical sexuality in the sense that we had uh, already been engaged with our daughter for, you know, 10, 12, 11, uh, 10, 11, 12, 13 years, just teaching her the scriptures. And so uh, we did reach the point, though, where we needed to do that more intentionally as it related to biblical sexuality. And so both my wife and I, uh, we had we had gotten hold of some resources that we were really comfortable with resources that would uh, frame the conversation uh, in, in a biblical way. And so what we did is we just took uh, weeks and, and even months to work through those with her in a very intentional, very personal way. Um, and, and interestingly, this is not something that either my wife, Karen, or I experienced growing up. So in, in a lot of ways, it was, um, it was not challenging in the sense that uh, it's, it's a responsibility we embraced joyfully, but it was challenging in the sense that we weren't doing what had already been modeled for us. It was something new in that sense. But I think God was really gracious, and we just said, we don't, we don't want this to be odd. We want to lay the groundwork for us to have really natural conversations about biblical sexuality. So we don't want this to act like this is taboo, uh, but we we also want to convey the seriousness of this conversation and the matters that we're talking about. So with her, we worked through a number of, of resources together and it, it, we didn't do this in an overly academic way, but I think in a way that, that matches the pattern we find in Deuteronomy 6, where it was very natural uh, as we went about our life together. And I, th- I think God has honored that and blessed that as she has continued to grow and mature. We've been able to continue to have those conversations in a way that that hasn't been strained 
and has felt pretty natural uh, to us. And then we're trying to replicate that now with the younger kids who are coming up through the ranks. Um, and uh, there is, there's a resource that I found very, very helpful outside of the scriptures, obviously, <laughs> but it's a book by Josh Mulvihill called Preparing Children for Marriage, uh, How to Teach God's Good Design for Marriage, Sex, Purity, and Dating. Uh, PNR published it. Josh is a friend, but it is, it is an incredibly helpful resource that I would commend to any parent um, who's seeking just to think through issues biblically and in a very natural uh, way, and it's very accessible. So I would commend that as one of the major resources we leaned on in having these conversations and still do. That, that's excellent. And, and say uh, the author's name again, Josh, what was the last name? Mulvihill, M-U-L-V-I-H-I-L-L, Mulvihill. Okay. Josh Mulvihill. All right, great. Yeah, thanks for, for sharing that. Joel, let's hear a little bit about, about you and your family. Yeah, so <clears throat> having three daughters, um, you know, and not, not, you know, I think the context of each home is different. And particularly if you have all of one gender, that allows you to be more laser focused, like where, where Jason's got to figure out, you know, how does he speak to his daughter, but also speak to his son and, and tailor that, that conversation through, you know, the context of Deuteronomy six and how that's the outflow of our everyday life. You know, for us, you know, um, we're at the point where I, I have, my oldest is 12. And so at the age of 10, um, in having some of these conversations because of the age at, that, you know, children are being exposed to pornographic images and the culture is through, you know, songs and music and all of that are, uh, there are themes that my children, whether they're in my home or out and about with friends or at school are hearing, um, you know, as those come up in conversation, even as my kids began singing, you know, songs that they would hear on the radio from a secular slant, it was, do, are you aware of what that means? Like, do you understand that? Hey, I know that you love that song, but let's kind of think through and talk through that as we're riding down the road. Hey, let's play kind of one verse at a time. What are they talking about? And kind of beginning to evaluate what they're hearing. <clears throat> and that led me to, at the age of 10, each one of my daughters, we established this with our first daughter. Um, I take them on a special trip. I let them help plan that trip and decide where it is. Uh, I would say within reason, uh, because my first daughter wanted to go to Paris and I just <laughs> felt like, you know, for various reasons that that might not be a great first trip for us to take. Um, but, uh, you know, she, she's very much our free spirit. She's the one that will probably fall in love first of my three daughters. The other two, I think may not ever care about boys. I don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, with, with my first daughter, it was, we went to the beach and the purpose of that trip was, you know, along with regular daddy daughter dates, um, this trip was to help her understand a right relationship with men, with the, with, with any male, um, all the way from the point of, you know, safe touches versus sexual touches versus, you know, hostile touches, all of those kinds of things, you know, making sure that I was opening the door for her talking about things. And um, so my wife and I began really praying about, you know, where's a place in scripture that we really want to temper the culture's expectation of how quickly she should quote unquote, fall in love or pursue a guy. Even now, you know, I think back when I was going to school, guys were always the ones who would pursue the, the, the girl. And now we see the opposite happening at a much higher rate. And so, you know, by the time she turned 11, so 10-year-old trip is with dad, 11-year-old trip is with mom. Uh, my wife, Kim, took uh, my oldest on a trip specifically to talk about uh, Passport to Purity, which is a resource that I would recommend to, you know, anyone, whether it's uh, for, you know, parents of a son or parents of a daughter, um, but I remember thinking about, and as we were praying about it, we wanted to, her to come away from that trip with something physical that she could keep with her to remind her not only of the trip, but, and not only of the content, but what's a, what's a biblical passage that could really begin to temper the idea of needing to have a relationship? Because our culture is really trying to push, particularly on young girls, you have to have this. 
Um, and so we we found in the book of you know Song of Solomon that three different times you know the the woman the Shulamite um, is is telling the daughters of Jerusalem, I adjure you, you know, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Uh, so that they're they're reminding our daughters that there is a time at which this might begin to take place, um, but also in the context of a a a biblical sexual ethic that is first and foremost pursuing Christ in purity, and then second, um, trying to think through the idea of um, it's okay to have a list of qualifications that you're looking for in, in someone to have a relationship with. So in, in the smelly home, you know, we're beginning with those two things and continuing to have those conversations in an ongoing way. Mm. Yeah, that's encouraging. And I like, I mean, several things that, that both of you said, I mean, starting the conversation at younger ages, um, you know, continuing to have those conversations, it makes it just more natural, more no, normal, less awkward, um, hopefully. And, and again, I'm doing something similar to, to what you two described, but hopefully um, that's just teaching our children. We're a safe person to come and talk to about this. And if you have questions, always, you know, come, come to mommy or daddy to, to talk about these issues. And so that's, that's encouraging. I mean, I mean, and transitioning now kind of to, to the church and how you two are seeking to lead congregations in this. I mean, Jason, as, as you brought up, th- this was not necessarily modeled to you as you were growing up. And I do think kind of previous generations of Christians just were silent on this issue. And um, if we just think of the, the best intentions, you know, them trying to to guard innocence maybe is, is kind of the, the motivating factor. It seems like we, we often hear for why, why this was not discussed. Um, and so it does seem like there, there's a, a trend now kind of pushing back on that saying, okay, look, God invented sex. God wove this into the fabric of his creation. This is not a, a bad thing. This is a good thing. And so starting there with our children, um, how are you in, in a sense trying to break the silence on this in, in your congregation? Because yes, it's something we should be talking about at the same time. We know there are people out in the congregations that might push back on that. And we know that people might not welcome that. And at the same time, it's a intimate thing to, to try to bring up. So Jason, Joel, again, y'all can, uh, fight over who goes first on, on this one. I guess since Joel just went, Jason, we, we can start with you. How are you attempting to lead your congregation with just a, a biblical sexual ethic? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to sound overly simplistic, but probably the the first thing that comes to mind is a commitment to expositional preaching. When we're not cherry picking where we're going in scripture, there are difficult topics that we have to talk about. Uh, so we're going through the Sermon on the Mount right now. So I'm in Matthew 5. I've got to talk about Jesus's very serious words about lust. I've got to talk about divorce and I've got to, I've got to do that in a context where I know people sitting in the congregation have, have been through divorces. And yet I know each of those are very unique. So I know that some have experienced abuse and abandonment. I know that others uh, were more clearly the result of selfishness and sin. So you've got to try to preach this text, which you're committed to preaching consecutively through these. So I got to do it, but I have to exercise pastoral wisdom in, in how I do that. So we've all seen this and we've talked about this. There are guys that preach these topics and they do it uh, with, a, with an intent to, to shock people, to be gratuitous, to create some sort of platform for themselves. In fact, we just, you guys probably just saw this video of this moron um, pastor abusing the pulpit, doing something like this. So obviously let's just all agree that's irresponsible and 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 sinful. And yeah. And, And let me just interject to say, I mean, a pastor like that, we need to, as believers, call a guy like that a, a moron. And if you, people are not um, familiar with that, I mean, this this guy was just saying that, you know, women often let themselves go when they're married and just absolutely horrific statements to use God's word in that way before a congregation to make statements like that is, is absurd. So just those listening, if they're unfamiliar, I just want to interject and kind of say that's a little bit of the, the context that we're addressing. So I'm glad you're bringing that up, Jason. Yeah, so I so when we when we talk about these issues, we're so we're committed to preaching scripture and we're com- committed to preaching all of it. 
But here's what we want to do. We want to avoid, as we see it, sort of two ditches. One ditch is um, that we so stigmatize sexual sin or sexual struggle that it in people's minds becomes the unpardonable sin that I can't ever talk to anybody about. So you create this atmosphere where no one is ever willing to, they, they would rather hide, they would rather shrivel up spiritually and die than ever talk about this with anyone. But then the other side is that you can take the teeth out of biblical warning passages and uh, and and passages we find in, in Galatians 5 and other places where, I mean, those enslaved to these kinds of sins will not inherit the kingdom. Like you have to preach that and you need to keep the teeth in that text, but then you need to exercise pastoral wisdom to be able to say, okay, here's how we understand the seriousness of the text, but there's always a note of hope uh, because we're gospel people. There's always a note of hope. And so what we're trying to do is trying to avoid both those ditches. We want to communicate the seriousness of sin, but yet we want to create an atmosphere where there's always hope. So please come and, and talk to someone, seek somebody out. You will not be uh, castigated. You will not be uh, pharisaically judged, but we will come alongside you and we'll apply biblical wisdom and the hope of the gospel to the struggles that you're facing. So that's what we're trying to do. I mean, very broadly, that's what mm -hmm. we're trying to do. We're committed to teach all the scriptures, but to do it in a way um, that communicates both the seriousness of sin and the hope of the gospel always. Mm -hmm. yeah. no, very good word. And I like how you said, not trying to sound overly simplistic, but just expository preaching. I mean, it shows the wisdom of why, why we do that in, in churches. Uh, it's going to force you to talk about issues. You don't necessarily want to talk about it. As people say, it keeps the preacher honest. Um, it's God's word, every bit of it, even the, the passages on lust and divorce and, and others that we want to kind of shy away from it at times. And so yeah, that, that's a very good word. And I love the, the kind of two extremes, the two ditches uh, to avoid as well. Uh, Joel, love for you to jump well, in. Well, you know, I mean, there's so there's so much there. Like, I mean, this could be seven or eight podcasts just kind of talking about the need to do this. Uh, the two big things that really come to my mind is, and and I, maybe maybe these are just kind of like sub points of what Jason mentioned, um, is just the idea of constantly going back to God's standard. I think one of the things that we do as Christians is we base what we do based on our cultural reality. And so as a Christian, I need to tolerate more of this and not do anything and respect and this. And then it goes into a permissive idea of how we interact with the culture and other people. When in reality, the goal of the gospel is to communicate first and foremost, who God is and his character and his standard. And so I think reminding people that one of the things that I love to tell, and sometimes I'll have randomly every few weeks or so, I'll just have our people during the preaching moment. I'll just say, Hey, look at your neighbor and say, I'm broken. Like the idea that, you know, this, the idea of like, man, I've, I've got my stuff together. It's like recognizing I'm, all of us are. And I think, especially in church culture, we get to the point where, um, like, like Jason was talking about how, you know, it's easy for us to say one sin is worse than the other. And the idea that now the new unpardonable, it used to be alcohol in the Baptist church unpardonable sin. Now it's this idea of any kind of sexual sin. It's like, God can't, God can't rescue you from that because the culture does a great job of, and I'll, I'm going to get to my points here in just a second, but the culture does a great job of telling us you are your sin. And, and secular psychology essentially says, this is something you're going to carry forever. And scripture would say, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the blood of Jesus Christ, you can be transformed from this. And so that is way more powerful. Uh, but how we approach it and understanding Genesis 3 in the fall of man affects every area of humanity. And that we would expect as a Christian that the thing that just because it's something we don't talk about, we tuck it away in this closet over here because it's taboo or it's uncomfortable or I don't know what to say or I don't know how to address it. That that 
that area is not touched by the fall. And in reality, it is. And whether it's the extreme of, you know, over-sexuality or, or, or an over-hyper desire for these things, i.e. lust, or a, a inordinate desire over here, i.e. maybe same-sex attraction, right? Both of which are on the pendulum and the, and the spectrum of sexuality, which one is experiencing a greater desire for more, and the other is experiencing potentially a desire that's heading in the wrong direction, both heading away from God's standard. And so that's just to reiterate, expositional preaching is one of the ways that we can constantly, through application, point to that. The second thing that I want to just bring up is the idea of, you know, uh, Colossians 1.28 says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ, that the church's job is to make disciples, and counseling in and of itself is discipleship ministry. And, you know, for some reason, we've labeled it as something that even in and of itself is taboo. Uh, and, And, you know, I just... You know, one of the things, so practically speaking, how we how we have come along, I just began, like I said, in our church, there's a lot of ministries that we're beginning and kind of starting um, training uh, new small group um, leaders. And part of that, through our small group ministry, counseling is a byproduct of it. And we're trying to teach our group leaders that that you can be equipped to help people in your group when something comes out. We tell them, Promise your people that no matter what comes out in group, here's my commitment. My jaw won't hit the floor, okay, because I recognize that I live in a fallen world. So we're preparing our leaders to receive information in a very sensitive, gentle way. Uh, But at the same time, we've kind of chalked the the idea, and maybe this is an oversimplification, that people tend to make decisions from four idolatrous hearts, anger, fear, foolishness, and despair. And God's word, you know, people, when we mention the idea of counseling in small groups, they're like, oh, my goodness, I've got to memorize, you know, all of the disorders that are in the, the, the playbook of whatever all this is. And then I've got to memorize all the scriptures that speaks to every single one of those. And the reality is, is if you if you kind of re- not simplicity, simpli- in simplicity, just reduce it down to those four hearts. But. Scripture specifically speaks to anger, fear, foolishness, and despair in very specific ways. And so now we're applying what I would like to call the salve of the gospel to these specific things where we tend to make decisions based out of those four areas. So that may have been more than you wanted, but you know. That's so so helpful to hear that. And and again, as you're talking about training your leadership as well, and just, I mean, that communication, as you said, kind of looking at those to your right and to your left and just saying, I'm I'm broken, Um, that that we need to continually remind people that the church is a place for for broken sinners. It's not cleaning ourselves up and then we show up to, to church. It's it's embracing that, seeing that. I mean, of course, spurring each other on to to fight against our, our sin and not just you know celebrate it, but to realize what we are broken individuals and this is a safe place to come and to share each other's burdens and to be open and vulnerable about struggles. Um, Jason, earlier you, you talked about just being sensitive as you talk about certain issues. Um, and I, I'm wanting to ask about singleness here. Um, you being sensitive as you talk about divorce, realizing there are people out there who this has not only p- impacted them personally, but obviously family members and friends. And so as you seek to talk about biblical sexuality, um, how do you include the singles in those discussions as well? We had Rebecca McLaughlin on a few weeks ago, and uh, she was just very good, not, not only in her book, but in that talk of the church being more sensitive to, to uh, recognizing singles in the congregation. So I'd love to hear from both of you on that. Yeah, John, I don't think that I do this particularly well, um, but I, I want to. And I think by God's grace, I have improved. Uh, some of that Some of that has been the result of going to single members of our church and asking them uh, to help me. I want to be sensitive to the particular struggles that you face. I want to apply scripture in a helpful way to you and others that are facing, um, just facing the world in the, in the unique way that you are. So that's been 
again, it probably sounds really simple, but moving, I think realizing that single adults in your church feel more ostracized and more lonely than you could ever imagine. And so moving toward them and giving them a listening ear and asking for their help. Say, help me uh, lead this church to become a faith family that more fully embraces you and helps you through the unique struggles and temptations that you face in life. And so that's been helpful. So I think if you if you were to listen to sermons of mine uh, over the last couple of years, especially when I'm making application to particular groups within the church, you'll hear me far more often talk specifically to the single adults in our church, whether that's a question related to the text or that's a particular application or encouragement. Um, that is the result of God using single adults within our congregation to help me pastor single adults more effectively. And I, what I've learned from them largely has been their struggles uh, in, in one sense are the same, right? At the most basic level, but the way, uh, like all the surrounding details are unique. Um, culture views them, um, how the culture targets them, um, how certain things land on them, how they hear it is different. And I've just had to seek those people out individually and say, help me, help me be a better pastor to single adults within the congregation. And, and they've, I've never met uh, or encountered one that has said, uh, yeah, no, thanks. Um, I, I'd rather not have this conversation. They've been very open to that and have usually followed up and said, um, you know, even the fact that you sought me out, uh, was, you know, deeply encouraging. Mm -hmm. now, I think, I think that's so good because as you said, I mean, within the church, single people can feel very marginalized. And so the fact that you're just naming that from the pulpit, you're educating the entire congregation to, you know, be sensitive uh, to, to this. Cause so often, I mean, again, Rebecca McLaughlin kind of mentioned this, we can celebrate marriage and she says, you know, as what we should, I mean, it's an institution created by God, but sometimes we can do it so much that we neglect those in this unique, uh, you know, providence that the Lord has for them. And so just naming that is, is important. Joel, any thoughts from you on this? A few, um, you know, I think, you know, back to Jason's point of, you know, expositional preaching really drives a lot. And the, the, the passages of scripture that speak of marriage and the family and God's plan to use the family to get the gospel to the nations, um, the idea that the gospel is introduced, Deuteronomy 6, in the home, that I think what we're doing is responding to a new cultural norm that shouldn't be a cultural norm. You know, um, yes, there are. It's so through the expositional preaching piece that Jason keeps referring to and, and really is, in my mind, the engine of not only education, but discipleship and, and the beginning of, of transformation in people's lives is, you know, if you're going to do a series on, um, on on marriage and on family or whatever it is, that you don't ignore singleness as a part of that, you know, because people are single before they're married. And so, but the question has to be, the specific application has to be, are we pursuing God's design? Or I think, I think, you know, it's going to come across as harsh when I say this. So, you know, or am I being selfish or am I afraid? And so I think we've got to start asking those questions and help the people who are single in our church. Like I'm teaching a, uh, a biblical leadership to our men, biblical leadership class to our men to kind of establish the, the reality that, you know, a lot of the men in our church, um, you know, are, they think about this idea of membership as kind of the, the bucket where only the mature people land. And so the last three weeks I've been talking about the qualifications of an elder and a deacon is not something that is meant to be in scripture or by the Lord himself as exclusive that if I'm not that I can never be that. 
but actually is a picture of the type of man that God wants every man to be in his church. And so holding up these biblical standards and these biblical ideas, you know, Proverbs 18, 22 says that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And, you know, Paul teaches all this stuff on family and on, you know, if a man burns with, you know, with lust, he has these desires that God has rightfully placed in his heart, then, then the natural outflow of that should be fulfilled in a, a spouse. And uh, I think upholding what God wants to take place, I, us responding to the cultural norm, and maybe Jason, John, if I'm speaking out of place here, just let me know. The cultural norm is that the divorce rate is actually falling. I don't know if you guys have studied that lately, but it's actually on the decline. But it's not because people are valuing and living in marriage in much better, healthier, biblical ways. It's because people are choosing not to marry. The marriage rate is also declining. And, and to me, that, that says something about the future of gospel proclamation, gospel multiplication, that is actually more hurtful to the church than it is helpful. And so I think upholding this marriage thing as something that should be pursued and actually is a way, hey, you want to present the gospel in a very meaningful way? Hey, if you've got these desires and God's placed it in your heart that you really want to be in a relationship, don't fear it because so many people are choosing to ditch it run into it as another opportunity to proclaim the gospel to a lost world. So maybe those things are helpful. I don't know. No, absolutely. Jason, do you want to jump in? Yeah, there's just as a means of, of uh, giving an example of what I was talking about, and it dovetails exactly with what Joel was just saying. So when, when I was, as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, um, and I came to Matthew 5, 31 and 32, talking about divorce. One of the things I did at the end of this sermon is I talked about sort of the positive side of this. Okay, here's what Jesus says about divorce. So how do we as a church, how can we treasure marriage? And I gave five pastoral applications to that, but here was one of them. We will treasure marriage as we present marriage as something to be pursued, not avoided. Mm-hmm. Marriage is not an inconvenience or an interruption to the good life. In fact, a church can have a robustly biblical understanding of singleness and celebrate the goodness of marriage as something to be sought after and enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think there is a way for us to uphold both of those, uh, to say this is God's good design. This is, this is sort of his default intention. Um, and we understand and have and embrace a, a robustly biblical understanding of singleness. Yeah. I think we could do both of those. Yeah. Uh, that's a good word for sure. And I, and I like and, how you said to go ahead, Joel. Yeah, and, and I would even just to kind of prop that up just a little more, uh, celebrate God's standard that's, that scripture speaks to both of those in a very positive way for specific reasons. So making sure that the reason and a heart motivation behind that is yet again, God's standard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And really kind of the, maybe the overarching kind of theme there is that so often we as sinners, we hear God's commands through a negative ear, you know, uh, we think of, okay, you're telling us what we cannot have, but instead celebrating the, the, the good, the truth behind it and the, the design that God has in place. Um, I think that's, Got a lot of wisdom. Uh, Jason, Joel, I know we're going to start wrapping up before too long. There, there's so much more I want to ask you guys, but I, but I know that we're not going to have a ton of time. But I would love to hear some of the challenges that your churches are, are dealing with, uh, you know, just in this entire, um, as we, we talk about biblical sexuality and we're thinking of kind of the LGBTQ movement. Um, we're thinking of, you know, pornography, all sorts of issues that, that are definitely um, impacting the church. And I know as we, we get into some of this, it can be kind of sensitive. So not necessarily just specifically your local congregation, maybe even in your your community. Um, but, but just as you think of some of the biggest challenges in this area, what are some of the things that, that come to the top? Again, Joel, Jason, whoever wants to, to jump in first. I think our people don't, and by our people, I mean the members of our church, and I think this is true across the board, they don't understand how effectively they're being catechized by the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, 
if we put ourselves on autopilot as Christians, our thinking is going to be shaped by a godless understanding of the world and everything in it. So I think one of the things we have to do as pastors, as husbands, as fathers, as disciplers, is we have to bring that out to people. We, we've got to push back and say, why are you thinking the way you're thinking? I, I fear your thinking has been shaped more by culture than by scripture. Mm-hmm. And pointing that out and not being afraid to do that, because I think uh, one of the uh, one of the things that many people in our churches face is the the catechesis that they've received from the world has uh, over time caused them to blush about yep. really foundational truths in scripture. And Joel has alluded to this several times. It's bringing them back to the fact that this is not this is not just um, it's not just a religious framework for life. It is the good design yes. of Creator God. Like this is not something you have to apologize for. This is something you should embrace. This is something you should celebrate. So we're in a we're in a small group of churches called the Pillar Network, about 150 churches, and every church in our network has to ascribe to the Nashville Statement. And one of the one of the articles there says this, and I I think this is so important for for us. Article four, we affirm that divinely ordained differences between male and female reflect God's original creation design and are meant for human good and human flourishing. We need every member of our church to know that and to embrace it and to live in that reality. This is God's good design. We are not, we are not these um, stodgy, narrow-minded fundamentalists that are trying to hold back progress. Mm-hmm. In fact, we think Scripture defines what is truly progressive and what is truly good and what is for uh, what is the design for human flourishing, and that's God's design. And so we've got to get over this. A, you know, tiptoeing around what scripture says about male and female and marriage and same-sex attraction and transgenderism. And we, we've got to winsomely, joyfully declare the goodness of this and say, it's not just good for us, it's good for the whole world. Yeah. Like this is the way God created uh, the world for it to flourish. So we're for your happiness. Yeah. We're for your joy. We're for your flourishing. So let me tell you about Jesus and let me point you to the scriptures and God's good design. Yeah. So I would just say, I love, I love Jason that you said when winsomely, I think that winsomely and joyfully both speak to the way that we address it. Because I think for the church for way too long, the church has been on the wrong side of this debate for far too long, you know, because we, we get, we, so if I'm if I'm looking at a center line, like I'm going down a highway on the right side of the lane to me is the culture and how the culture is driving this debate. The culture is saying, I prefer this. I need you to now fall in line with my preference. OK, i.e. the LGBTQ kind of idea of things that are taking place even legislatively right now. You know, this is my preference. And if I want to change it at any point, I can. Right. And so there's this side of engaging the debate over here. Right. And 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 this is where we've lost the debate. This is where we've lost ground on that side. On the other side is, you know, this is God's expectation. This is God's desire. And the problem is, is we've spent too much time over here and we've been trying to address the culture here. And what we're trying to do is bring a validation over here that the culture doesn't understand and apply it to an argument here, which is easily rejected, easily pushed out. And in my mind, it is particularly inside of our church as we handle these kind of conversations is to stop in our church over here, stop going to the culture side of that debate and 
instead of pushing the standard, because here's what in, in practical terms happens. And, you know, in my years of ministry, I have learned that I have been on that side uh, for, for too long myself is, is that we hold up this picture of this standard of the culture and say, don't be that. John, you were talking about that earlier about, you know, the negative side of the commands that, you know, avoid the negatives. Right. And so we've said, okay, don't be that. And so all of our churches are like, oh man, I'm not that. When in reality, if we hold up the other standard that God has, then we will find ourselves busy pursuing something that is worthwhile, that God wants us to focus our time on. You know, don't think about things that are here on earth. I believe there was an author in scripture, maybe Paul said it. Uh, instead, focus on things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. Like our mindset should be to pursue these things. And, and then we hold up this picture of this standard to our people and say, how's it going here? Because at the end of the day, what Jason was saying was this good thing that God has, people in, even in the church aren't experiencing it because they're still over here. And they're not saying, I bet there's a lot of stuff that I'm not experiencing that God wants to give me if I would just pursue that piece. You know, and I think of you know, Psalms, Psalm 127, you know, it talks about behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. And it kind of goes back to this idea of Deuteronomy 6, us engaging our, our, our primary influencers in discipleship in our churches are the parents of the kids, right? So like, as we engage with moms and dads to begin having these conversations in the home, which they're afraid to have many of them, to help them to understand that, you know, Verse four of Psalm 127, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. The idea that as I'm training my child, God gives them to us for for however long, right? 18 years typically in the home that I'm whittling away. I'm sharpening that arrow. I'm, I'm adding the feathers to the end to make it more pre precise, to stay on target. That these are gospel arrows that an archer, when they leave the home, can pull out of their quiver and shoot out. Where? At the culture? At the enemy. And be precise in, in addressing even these things. So, I don't know, maybe that was too broad of a picture for folks to kind of see. Now, that, that's helpful. Jason? Yeah, just one thing to add to that. Joel and I both emphasize the, the way we need to engage uh, both the people in our churches and outside our churches. I think one thing, one caveat I would want to add is no matter how winsome and joyful your declaration of God's good design is, that does not guarantee that people in, in the world, those outside the church are going to respect you and going to listen to you. So I do think there has to be, um, there has to be a, a resignation to the fact that we are referred to as exiles and aliens and outcasts for a reason. And that's not because, uh, we're, we're pugnacious and we're jerks and we treat people in, in wicked ways, but the mere reality and the mere fact that we hold to the things we're talking about are going to put us on the outside looking in and, and Christians need to learn how to be okay with that. Hmm. Un unapologetic is the way that we talk about it in our church. Hmm. It doesn't mean harsh. It just means we don't feel like God's word needs anybody to apologize for it. Yeah. Yeah. No, no that's, that's a good word. Um, you, you know, as you're saying that, I mean, absolutely. As you, as you are saying this, we need to be gracious. We need to be loving. We need to be welcoming to those who are broken at the same time. Uh, we do not need to shirk away from proclaiming the truth and we need to realize the truth is gracious. The truth is loving. Um, and yeah, I mean, we, we follow a man, Jesus Christ, who uh, was not received well by others and was, uh, you know, denied by his friends uh, in his greatest time of need. Um, so we should not expect for us to just be welcomed with open arms by, by the culture when we're proclaiming this truth. And, and as you're saying this, I'm thinking, okay, at the time of this recording, I know um, a recent Mortification of Spin podcast was talking about Max Lucado or Max Lucado, however you say his last name, I've heard it both ways. Um, and just some of the, the, 
um, I guess the apology that, that he made. And uh, I just want to point people to that podcast, not because we're not going to get into this at, at the very end of our podcast, but just to, to point people to that podcast to say, listen to Carl Truman and um, how they begin to, to discuss this apology uh, that Max Licato made it to the world on some of his statements about biblical sexuality. And so I think it's just some helpful dialogue as we kind of think about how this message will or won't be received in the culture. Uh, before we close out, Joel, you got something. Yeah. You know, as we, as we all seek, whether we're a pastor or a church member, I mean, pastors, people re- don't realize this pastors are church members. Okay. Um, you know, we just are the ones who carry the weight of the teaching and the leadership um, and the shepherding. Um, but when you, when we think about modeling Christ to not just our people in our church, but modeling Christ to the culture, you know, Jesus was full of grace and truth. And if we're all truth and no grace, then we're barbaric and harsh. And if we're all grace and no truth, then we're very permissive in the things that we will and won't address. And, you know, there's this idea that of trying to be like Christ, having that balance full of, 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 truth and grace together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that is kind of the, the ethos or the, the way in which we do ministry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jason, Joel, I really appreciate the two of you coming on. I know this is uh, uh, these are some difficult waters to wade into and to try to have a discussion on. And there's, again, so much more we could zoom in on, so many more conversations we could jump off into. Um, but, but hopefully th- this is uh, helpful to those who are listening uh, to just how we, we can seek to lead and to, to keep the truth before our people. So really appreciate the two of you taking the time to come on. Thanks, John. Thanks for the opportunity. Oh, come and buy without money.